As many of you know, I am a huge sports fan, especially when it comes to my favorite teams. I wore my Arkansas shirt for that very reason this morning, just to uh, display my fandom just a little bit and for the purposes of at least this introduction. And, and while I don't live and die with every win and loss quite like I used to, I am still pretty invested and I, I, I still get upset when we lose and I'm a little bit more elated when we win and sometimes I need to be reminded it's just a game. It's just a game. It's not life or death. It's, it's just a game. Although I'm guessing I'm not the only one who needs that reminder from time to time. In fact, I know of at least one guy who probably could have used that reminder. Uh, one, I was reading a story about one Turkish soccer fan who took his fandom to the next level, uh, if that's what you want to call it. I don't know how else to describe it, but apparently he was banned from attending games in person, and so uh, for a full year, in fact, I don't know exactly what he did, but he was banned for, from attending games at the stadium for a full year. And so instead of watching the games at home on his TV, he actually decided to hire a crane, and he took the crane with the crane operator, whom he also hired, I guess, uh, to the stadium and got into the bucket and they lifted up the crane and he watched the game over the stands. It was kind of a smaller stadium, but he watched the, the game over the stands from his crane. His viewing, though, didn't last very long as local police soon showed up and uh, asked him to lower the crane and, and to leave the area. But it d does make for a, a, a pretty good story. And maybe I've never gone to those links in my fandom. But I have spent, if I'm just honest, way too much time and energy when it comes to sporting events, thinking, why did they do that? And, and why did they make that call? And why did, why, did, why did the ref do this? And why did the other team do that? And, and all of these questions and you know, playing over in my mind and spending so much time and energy worrying about the plays and the wins and the losses. And more than once, I've had to check myself and say, why do I care so much? I mean, if I know it's only a game, why do I care so much? I mean, I'm not even going to remember the score in a few months, if even that long. And here's the reality. Here, here's what I know about myself. I can give major parts of my heart to minor concerns. And my guess is that you can too. And it may not be sports. Some of you will spend hours watching television shows about you know, that talk about what famous people wear to, to you know, um, award shows. Some of you will, um, you know, spend hours, countless hours watching a show called The Bachelor, which you need Jesus if, if, that's, if that's you. Uh, for some of you, maybe it's not the shows you watch, but it's how much time you spend on social media and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those other things. But whatever it is, we all do this. We all have a tendency to give major space in our hearts to what are minor concerns. And so I thought it'd be good, as we started the new year, to just look at what does the Word of God say about what really counts? Well, what does God say, God, God have to say in His Word about what really matters and what really counts? And so we're in a series called just that, What Counts? And we saw two weeks ago that suffering counts. James, the brother of Jesus, says you can count on trials. You can count on, on suffering and adversity. The question is, will you make your trials 
count. And then last week we saw that faith counts. That when, we, that, that when God hears our, our amen, that we, we believe in, 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 in his radical, audacious, crazy gift of grace that he has given to us through Jesus Christ. When we amen that or are baptized into Jesus Christ, he counts us as righteous. That we don't have to fear the question, if you died tonight, would you make it to heaven? Because if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and believed in him and been buried with him in baptism, then the answer is yes. Because we're not counting on our own goodness, but rather, rather we are counting on the goodness of God who keeps his promises. But that subject that we talked about last week, about how faith counts and it's not dependent upon what we do to earn our salvation, that, that whole subject raises a very significant question. Because as we reflect on the radical, scandalous enormity of God's grace, and that we're not saved by, by trying to be good enough, but by trusting in his goodness, the question then comes up, well, then does it even matter to try and be good? And that question comes in, in several different forms, but basically, basically it comes down to this. Does sin not matter? Does sin not matter? Does it not matter how we live? If we've been saved by grace, does it not matter how we live? Is holiness an unworthy goal? And those questions, listen, those questions do not water down or take away from the gospel that you and I are saved by grace through faith, that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but rather we accept the free gift of salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ through faith and being buried with Jesus in baptism. But those questions do point to the fact that there's a little more to the story. As, as Paul Harvey might say, let me tell you the rest of the story, right? And, and to tackle that question, we, we're going to go back to the Apostle Paul's words in the book of Romans because he actually got the same question that, that I'm kind of presenting to us uh, this morning and maybe that some of you have asked. I know others uh, have asked this before as well. But we looked at Romans chapter 4 last week. And in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, Paul just unpacks how God in his grace through Jesus Christ has offered us his righteousness. And the people who heard that thought the same thing that some of us still think today. And that question still arose for them. And so Paul starts off Romans chapter six like this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul says, I know what you're thinking. If my sin, make, if my sin just makes God's grace even more amazing, then why shouldn't I sin more so that his grace looks even more amazing? And, and, and really, that is always the chief criticism of the gospel of grace. And I know Paul kind of presents it in a tongue-in-cheek tongue, tongue type of way, but really the question does come down to, if I am saved by grace, how much does it matter how I live? And again, that has always been the chief criticism of the gospel of grace, that if you preach salvation based on grace, people will start acting like sin doesn't count. You preach the gospel of grace and, and people will have a license to sin, which, by the way, it seems to me that people are sinning pretty well without a license, so I don't think that's the problem. But Paul would say, no, I would never say that disobedience to God's will is, is somehow a minor concern. 
It, just the opposite. Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, keeping God's commands is what counts. That, that's, that's what counts. Obedience, holiness, that is what counts. But how do you motivate people to want to be holy and to pursue obedience? If we're just saved by grace and if we, you know, if we, we, we kind of take that to the extreme, how do you motivate people to, to want to pursue holiness and obedience? Paul would say, I think, that it's not produced by an external focus on rules, but rather it can only be produced by an internal motivation. One of the best illustrations for this that I've come across uh, to communicate this, this idea of, of an internal motivation instead of just an external list of rules is a story I heard that happened some years at, a, at a, I think it was a middle school or a high school and these young ladies were, were kind of just beginning to experiment with makeup and, and lipstick. And they were going into the bathroom and they put on the lipstick and then they'd kiss the mirror to kind of make sure that, you know, they were playing around a little bit, but also to get their, you know, try and get the lipstick right and play around with the, the lipstick. And, and the principal tried over and over again, communicating to these ladies and to everyone that this needed to stop. She even put a sign up in the bathroom and said, don't do this. But the girls just kept doing it. So the principal had an idea. She got all the ladies into the bathroom with the custodian. And she says, ladies, when you kiss the mirror, it is very hard to clean. And she turned to the custodian and she said, would you please show the girls how hard it is to clean excuse me, these mirrors. And so the custodian took the squeegee that he used to clean the mirrors and he dipped it a couple of times in the toilet and then he proceeded to clean the mirrors. After that, as you can guess, there were no more issues with lipstick being put on the mirrors because the motivation was no longer of some rule from the outside but it was coming from the inside. She gave them a picture <laughs> that they could remember, and no doubt they remembered it. But Paul did the same thing. That's, that's a lot of what Paul is going to tell us. He says, I, I want you to remember a picture. He says, do you, do you think that I'm saying that because we are saved by grace that sin doesn't count? By no means, he says. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know, here's the picture, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Paul would say, if you see a Christian who is acting like sin doesn't count, Here's what you should tell them. Take your baptism into account. Take your baptism into account because to live like sin doesn't matter or to live like how we live doesn't matter is, is to reveal a very poor understanding of what actually happened when we got baptized. You said not only is our baptism a unification, an insertion into Christ and into a new life in him, but our baptism is also a declaration that our relationship to our old self and our old life of sin is over. We're putting that behind us. I like how the message translation puts verses two and three. It says, if we've left the country, <coughs> excuse me, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up 
and left there for good. That is what happened in baptism. Paul says holiness counts. Not because someone gave you a list of rules to follow, but because you remember your new identity. You see, you didn't just turn over a new leaf. You actually received a new life when you unified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And with that new life comes new possibilities because the old captivities are now buried. And that reality is so critical for us understanding how much holiness truly does count. And if you grasp this idea, or at least begin to grasp this reality, you will have a new radical passion for holiness. And so let's keep reading. Romans chapter six, verses five through seven. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, this is what happens, by the way, when you go under the water. It's, 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 it's why we immerse, by the way. But baptism is, is participating in, this is the picture Paul has given us, it's participating in and picturing the death of Jesus. That's why we, again, why we immerse and we go fully under the water because someone has died. We're being buried we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so when you come out of the water, just like when you go under the water, you are unifying, you are participating and picturing the death of Jesus. When you go under the water and then you come back out of the water, you are participating in and picturing the resurrection of Jesus. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And so Paul is saying your participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus brought a liberation that you need to own and live into. It's not just forgiveness of your sins and, 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 and your sins being washed away, but there is a new life that you are now called to live. There is a new grace that this grace that you have been given, you are now called to live a new life out of, a new life of holiness. And obedience and that participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is so much bigger, I think, than you and I might often realize. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to talk about it just a little bit more um, this week. Let me illustrate uh, with something that I, I see a lot uh, these days, and you've probably seen it too, that, that bumper sticker. You see the, the, the Christian bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, Right? And it sounds good, and I get the idea, but the problem I have with that is that it's just half the gospel. Yes, we are forgiven, but we're not just forgiven. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are not only forgiven, but we are released. We, we participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he died once for all to sin and all of sin's claims. All the claims that sin had on us, Jesus died for those and released us from them. Every claim that sin had on us was satisfied for anybody who is united to the death of Jesus. And so think about it. If you broke the law and you went to jail and you paid your debt to society, and every claim the law had on you was now resolved, would you stay in jail? Would you stay in prison when the law had no claim on you? Harry Houdini was, of course, one of the most well-known escape artists and magicians, and he claimed that he could get out of any prison cell in just one hour. 
All that he asked is that you allow him to wear whatever clothes he wanted, not search him and give him some privacy. And so a little town in the British Isles took him up on the challenge. They said, we think we've built a prison cell that you can't escape from. And so he went there and took them up on on their challenge of his challenge. Uh, So he went there and they put him in the cell and they closed the door and he pulled the tools out of his coat and he began to work on the lock and he worked for that entire hour and he could not get out and 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 he worked for a second hour and and he could not get that lock to click no matter what he did he could not get that lock to click and finally frustrated he put up his tools leaned against the door and it flew wide open because they had tricked him they had never locked the door and sadly that's a picture of many christians They're staying in that old prison cell they were in before Jesus, even though now it's unlocked. I mean, do we believe, do we we honestly believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive sin, but somehow not powerful enough to conquer sin? Do, Do we believe that? Did the death and resurrection of Jesus break all of our bondage or not? Paul says death couldn't hold him. He paid the debt, the claim was settled, and he was raised from the dead. And because he got up, nothing has to hold you down anymore. And so Paul continues in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, and we did, we believe that we will also live with him, and we can For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he now lives to God. And here it comes, get ready for this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, back in Romans chapter four, it is God who does the counting, right? We talked about that last week. We say amen to God's offer of grace through Jesus and he counts us as righteous. But now in Romans chapter six, we need to do the counting. We have bet, we, we've been set free from that old life and we need to count this to be true because here's the reality. Something, been, something can be true and you not count it as true. You you can know something intellectually in your brain. You can have a head knowledge of something, but that doesn't mean you truly believe it and are living out of that belief and that reality. And so Paul says, count it to be true. Count yourself dead to sin. It's not enough that we've died to sin through our union with Christ. We must count it true to experience the victory. Because Satan wants you to feel like you still don't have any choice. But what Satan thinks doesn't count. Slavery is not your identity. You don't have to listen to that old slave master anymore. You have a new identity. Did you know that the the single word the New Testament uses for believers and followers of Jesus more than any other is the word saint? More than any other word when it used to describe you and me as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, that word saint, it means that you are set apart. You are a holy 
person. Now, it's not a case of mistaken identity. When you united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God declared you holy. You are positionally holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's given you, he's given you his Holy Spirit to help you practically start growing ever more into who God desires you to be. We are made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we always look like Jesus. And so we need to continuously be growing into who God desires us to be. Now, I'm not saying that you will ever completely be sinless. I'm saying that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, though, you can sin less. In fact, you should count on it. Because there is no brokenness or bondage that cannot be healed and released by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so maybe a better question than, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven, is this. And if you wake up tomorrow morning, what difference is your union to Jesus Christ gonna make in your life? Are you going to live the baptized life? And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Verse 12, Paul says, therefore, now you've heard me say this before, that in the Bible, when you read therefore, you need to ask yourself, what's it there for? So he's summing up all of what he just said. Therefore, because of this radical offer of grace that God has given to us through Jesus, therefore, because you believed it and were baptized into Jesus, therefore, because you you united to the most powerful moment of history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, therefore, because all sins sins claims on you are satisfied, therefore, because sin now no longer has a right to tell you what to do anymore, therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life because that's what happened when you were baptized. When you said amen and you received God's gift of grace, you were baptized into him and received that salvation, you moved from death to life. So offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. You are under grace. Count that true. Count that reality to be true. So how do we do that? Let me just give you a couple of things. First, you've got to refuse sin's offer. Refuse sin's offer. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 2 Corinthians And you don't have to let Satan hang out on the premises anymore. Take your baptism seriously. Own it and live into it. And part of what that means, excuse me, part of what that means is that you're not going to, excuse me, that you are going to stop practicing, uh, I like what somebody called it, uh, the, the pet sin heresy. And so we'll kind of go with that. Uh, the, the, the pet sin heresy, Here, here's what I mean by that. There are far too, well, actually what he meant by that, but uh, what I'll kind of explain it as, there are far too many Christians who justify a pet sin or a, a little bitty, you know, if we're, we're call them, you know, big lies and white lies, little white, like, like a little white sin, right? We, we justify those, those little pet sins in our lives. And so we say, well, I, you know, fill in the blank with what I do. I, I do this. 
but I don't do it very often, you know? I blank, but it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, it doesn't really affect me all that much. I fill in the blank, but at least I don't do that. Or at least I don't go, go that far, right? You, you see, we all have this, this one, we have a tendency to have this one part of our lives where we think, well, hey, after all, we're saved by grace. I, I don't need to deal with my pet sin. It's not that big of a deal. At least I don't go that far. All of those things and justifications that we say, which is kind of like saying, you know, the doctor told me that I have cancer, uh, but I looked at the x-ray and it wasn't really that big, so I'm just not going to really worry about it, right? How many of us would, would say that, right? But let me tell you why that's a problem, as if that statement doesn't seem like a problem. But let, let me tell you about a, a study I read um, that was released several years ago. That uh, It was released in the uh, Journal for Applied and Environmental Bi Microbiology, which I'm sure all of you read cover to cover consistently every month. Uh, but it was a study done on the five-second rule. And... and all of us, I'm sure, especially us parents, are very familiar with the five-second rule, right? You drop a piece of food on the floor or whatever it may be, you pick it up, and within five seconds, you can, you can eat it, right, if you pick it up within five seconds. Although it's funny, you know, you think about your kids with your first child, like if they, if they you drop, I mean, you're overly cautious about stuff, right? So if they drop their pacifier on the floor, you're disinfecting and purifying that thing for days, right? You're like sending it away to the cleaners to be cleaned. And then by your second or third child, if they drop it in the mud, you just kind of wipe it off and stick it back in their mouth, right? And we're made from dust and to dust we will return anyway. So, uh, but but we, we all know what the sec five second rule is. We're familiar with, with that. Well, this scientist, Dr. Daniel Schaffner, at Rutgers University, decided to study the five-second rule. And so he picked four kinds of, of different foods and four kinds of different surfaces. And what he did is he dropped those foods onto the different surfaces. And he let the, the food stay for one second, for 30 seconds, and for 300 seconds. And he did this over 2,500 times. And every single time, even if it was on there for just one second, the food was contam contaminated with bacteria every single time. And the same is true when it comes to sin. That's why I say there's a problem with, with that little pet sin, right? Those little small things, sins that we think are insignificant or no big deal. Sin always contaminates. It always infects and it always grows. It's malignant. It doesn't matter if it's a little or if it's a lot. Sin always contaminates, and it may start off with a little, but I guarantee you it'll get to a lot if you let it grow. And either way, what you're doing is you're listening to that old slave master. You're letting the old slave master tell you who to be. Why would we want to be resigned to any sin in our lives when we can be released from it? Why do I want to have any part of my life where the old slave master is calling the shots? So don't offer any part of your life to sin. Don't be bullied by the old master. You can say no, and, and God and, and the Holy Spirit will give you the courage and the strength to own your baptism and to start becoming the person that you were meant to be. But holiness is more than saying, or more than just saying no. Paul says, count yourself dead to sin, but also alive to Christ. 
See, it's not just about being forgiven. It's also about what he's called us to. You are alive to God. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin, but offer yourselves to God. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Offer what counts. Count yourself alive to God. You see, it's not just freedom from, but it's also freedom to. It's freedom to be who I was created to be. It's freedom to now be able to say yes to God, to be at his disposal, disposal, available for his mission and his purposes. It's a life of saying yes to the offerings of God, the good, life-giving offerings of God. But I have to decide each and every day that I will be an offering to God. I have to decide that each and every day. That's why Paul would later say in Romans chapter 12, 12, here's what counts. Here's what God wants. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And here's the irony. When you offer yourself as a sacrifice, when you die to yourself, you're going to be more alive than you've ever been. You see, grace doesn't mean that you just do whatever you want to do. Which, by the way, one of the greatest lies the enemy tells us is that doing whatever you want to do somehow brings freedom and holiness somehow brings restriction. That is an outright, bold-faced lie of the enemy. Doing whatever you want does not bring freedom. Some of us have had to learn that the hard way. Doing whatever you want does not bring freedom. It brings bondage. Not some of the time, all the time. And it may not end that moment, but eventually it will. It always has, and it always will. The only thing that truly brings freedom is living in and living out of the grace of God. Because holiness doesn't restrict us. It releases us. And so grace doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want to do because that doesn't bring freedom. But grace means that you are set free to become who you were created to be. And so offer your life to God, not to sin. Because here's what I know. In the end, you're not going to remember the score of soccer games or football games or basketball games or whatever sporting event it was or who won what TV show. But the world is going to remember the impact of a life that gave major space in the heart to what counts.